In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little bit more about you to make that possible. So would you please do me a favor? Can you go to podsurvey.com slash Jamie? That's J-A-M-I-E, podsurvey.com slash Jamie, and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. You guys, you can buy a lot of great things on Amazon for $100. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's pod, P-O-D, survey.com slash Jamie, J-A-M-I-E. Guys, thanks for your help. Go to podsurvey.com slash Jamie. Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey y'all, and welcome to the Friday episode of the Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm super excited you're joining us today for episode number 486 with my friend, Joel Metamali. And I invited Joel on because I wanted to chat about Good Friday. Today is Good Friday. If you are a Christian, today is a very special day in our faith. Uh, it is the day that Jesus was crucified. And that day is something that we can just become accustomed to. It doesn't seem like it has the greatest effects on our life every day right now. But what Joel did today is he takes us back and looks at history. And by doing that, we get to see the gravity of what it would have meant in the current culture to be crucified on a cross. And so we talk about that today. We talk about how we have the cross as a symbol of hope these days, when previously it was not a symbol of hope. I also asked Joel, what does it look like as parents to talk with our kids about Jesus being crucified? And how do we do that? And then I also ask him, why did Jesus have to die? What was the point of the cross? And so today's conversation is really special. It's really important and it's really informative as well. And Joel and I just have a great time as well. I also want to say that I have another song to share with you. If you can't tell, I'm one super proud wife over here. My husband works at the Austin Stone Community Church. And so Austin Stone Worship, he's a part of that in songwriting. And they're just releasing some great songs these days. And I have another song available for you today at the end of this episode. And it's all about Good Friday. So there's not this big happy ending at the end. It's all about Good Friday. And so you're going to hear that today after the interview. Stick around for that. All right, here's my conversation with Dr. I should say that Dr. Joel Metamali. Joel, welcome to the happy hour. Well, thank you, Jamie. It feels, I mean, just a huge honor. I'm so excited to be here with y'all. The only way it would be better if I was actually in Austin with y'all, but maybe someday. That's, that's, that's the absolute only way this would be better. And one day it's going to happen and you're going to bring Brittany and we're going to hang out and it's going to be just the it best. It will be. And then you will no longer want to be my friend. You will just want to be Britt's friend. And we all know. <laughs> so that's probably good that we haven't gotten there yet because then I would just be uninvited. Is that how you think that it goes that people are like, oh my gosh, we love your wife? I don't, that's not, it's not how I think. That's just how it is. <laughs> I've, I've, humility is a big thing in my life recently. And my wife is God's gift and uh, she is the best. So that is hilarious. Uh, your wife is amazing, by the way. Um, she's so amazing. And if you guys, 
Joel, I hold tight. I feel like I'm doing exactly what you say people do that I'm about to make your <laughs> wife to everybody. I'm like, if you don't follow his wife on Instagram, you should uh, 100% because she will make your day. So almost Indian ask. wife. Well, because I'm Indian. She's white. She's almost, she's, she's trying to be Indian. She'll, she'll get there one day. She's trying to she'll be get Indian. there one day. She'll one be there day. one day. She has a great Instagram. Um, Joel, I'm so happy that you're here. Um, I met you through uh, the organization that you work for, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute. Uh, but also, I want to tell everyone that I did, I have chatted with you before on a podcast before. Aaron and I, we have a podcast that had two seasons called On the Other Side. It was a lot of fun. It was fun working together with Aaron. And we actually interviewed you all about kind of being like in the job that you have now. You're, I don't know if you're the only, you're one of the only men in this ministry organization that you work for. And so it was an honor. It was a, a just a pure honor to have you on that podcast. And we'll put a link for that in the show notes. But speaking of, tell everyone what you do in day to day. Yeah, I get to work for Proverbs 31 Ministries. And so I serve, the fancy title is Director of Theology and Research. Um, I think I have the very best job in the entire world because um, I just literally get to work on all of our theology projects, Bible study projects, book projects. Um, we just released a brand new study uh, a little bit ago uh, that Lisa and I, uh, our president, Lisa Turkus and I co-authored called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, and then a study right before that is called 40 Days to the Bible. And so I just get to spend my time, the, the, the folks at Proverbs, they love calling me the uh, the resident theologian. And so it's like an unofficial title that I'm trying to make official somehow because it just sounds cool. So I just... I, it sounds so cool. The resident theologian. <laughs> yes. But this is what I have to tell everyone. I was telling someone recently that I was going to have you on and we were going to talk about Good Friday. Today is Good Friday. If you're listening to this podcast today, it came out. You can listen to it whenever. And this conversation will still be relevant because... Good Friday, it is happens every year. It happened once and we celebrate it all the time. So, but I was telling everyone, I'm like, listen, I'm gonna bring Joel on. And he's like the smartest person I know, but he's not a dork. Like he's <laughs> cool. He talks where we can understand him. And so I love your resident theologian title. And I think you have a cool, cool job. Well, thank you. I think it's the best. Well, okay, so we are gonna talk about Good Friday today. Yeah. And I started thinking a couple months ago, like, man, I really would love to talk to someone who is super smart. And are you done with your PhD program? Yeah, you graduated I, yeah yet? I finished my dissertation last year. Uh, like, I think I, I got I officially defended in November. And um, yeah, so it's done. So it is it Congratulations. is PhD right after my my little name there, which really, all that means is I'm way more aware of what I don't know. That's that's <laughs> the journey of the PhD. Well, student. now, I guess for the rest of this interview, I must call you Dr. Metamon. That's just that there. What what disrespect have I shown you so far? What did you get? Like, what was your dissertation? What you what was your final? Yeah. Thing? So my dissertation was on Paul's household themes, his oikos terminology uh, in Ephesians. And so I argued um, that Paul always had in mind a multi-ethnic, multinational, multicultural household. Um, and that actually the multi-ethnic household is a reversal, um, actually a redemptive restoration of what happened at the Tower of Babel. And so this isn't something new or novel. Um, it's actually something that, um, that Paul is deeply, deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And so a lot of when you get into commentaries and Ephesian stuff, everybody wants to talk about the Greco-Roman context and household and um, paterfamilias and all this other stuff. And kind of my thought was, you know what? Um, Paul's a really good Jewish guy and he understood his, um, his Jewish like background and his heritage. Mm. And I actually think he's got um, Hebraic understanding behind this. And so that's really what I argued. And I actually found that 
Um, yeah, this isn't a novel thing. In fact, the multi-ethnic household of God is a sign and symbol uh, to the powers. We're going to segue into, I think, a little bit of our conversation today, but it's actually God's intended sign and symbol for the powers that one, they have been defeated, two, they are being defeated, uh, and three, that their defeat is near at hand. Wow. Are you putting all of this into a book so we can all read it? Is that what happens next? Well, n- what happens now is I put it down and don't look at it for a year. What happens now is you rest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe one day we'll uh, put it into a trade book or something like that. But um, it is it, it was it really was a joy, honestly, um, to go through mm-hmm. it and to really be in conversation with some brilliant, brilliant scholars and theologians that have wrestled with this topic. And the way that I find myself and just in everyday life, honestly, Jamie, is I think of myself as a synthesizer. Um, I'm trying to see and hear what scholars are doing and thinking and talking about and build a bridge to the everyday mm-hmm. Bible person and say, hey, actually, this has incredible importance to our daily life and the way they would live it out in relationship in the local church. Yeah church and with each other in the family of God. Well, I see you doing that and I appreciate that. And I would read whatever had your name on it. So let's segue into Good Friday. And um, I was telling you that I wanted to have a conversation about this because I think personally in my own life and in the, in the larger scale of the North American church, and I, I never feel comfortable speaking for the global church because I just don't have my, my finger on the pulse as much in there. And so I, I like to keep this as like as North American as I can. And I apologize to those who are listening who are like, don't forget about us. I don't forget about you. Just what I'm about to say, I don't want to lump you in with it. Yeah. Is I feel like there's this tendency t- sometimes as we've, you know, we, we live our day-to-day lives, you know, we, we are going to college or we're doing our university or we're parenting our kids. And all of a sudden we look up and we're like, oh, it's Easter. Okay. So good Friday, like, okay, maybe we go to a good Friday service and then, and then we know Easter's coming and we get an Easter dress and you know, you make an Easter basket and all the things and we celebrate he is risen. But I've noticed that I haven't, and I'll do a personal confession here. I have sometimes not paused long enough to think through Good Friday mm. and what the implications are for us as believers. I know the things. I know that our faith is built on that weekend, basically, of what happened in Jesus's life. But I want to talk about Good Friday, and I think the way I want to start us out here is, um, you know, we call it Good Friday, and so I think my first question to you is, why do we even call something so brutal and so devastating Good Friday? Yeah, well, you're going to get me a little bit on um, on a little bit. I don't know. I get real passionate about this stuff. So um, let me start with this. John Stott once said pretty brilliantly um, that there is no Christianity without the cross. Um, and so the, f- the first place I think, and this is what you're hinting at that is so vital is that we have to understand and rightly view the cross. I have a little bit of a challenge and, a, and not a problem, but a challenge with the, the phrase Good Friday, because sometimes I think what happens is that we've made some, um, some massive assumptions that we as a people, particularly a people of God, know exactly what is good about Friday. And you can't get to what is good about Friday until you get through the horror of what took place on the days leading up to Friday. Mm. Um, And so in general, I think of us as Bible students, I think one of the greatest dangers that we have is this concept of familiarity. 
We have more access to the Bible than ever before. We know the stories. I mean, you could pick and choose right now and Google your favorite Good Friday, whatever, from your favorite preachers yep. and pastors, and you'd get access to incredible information. Um, and I actually think that familiarity with the, um, the, the scriptures, the story of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection, and I want to also loop in the ascension into this as well, um, could be incredibly disastrous for us. Um, and what it, what it turns into is a complacency uh, with right. the cross. And we can never become complacent with the cross. So maybe the first place that I would start with is um, why do we call it good? Well, we call it good because of the after effects of what we know takes place um, as a result of Jesus's uh, work on the cross. But I want to start as a historian, if, if that's okay with you. I love that because I would. my question to follow up was, when did we start calling it Good Friday? Because everything you're about to tell me that I know I've heard from you before about the cross and about what happened. I can't imagine early Christians calling that day Good Friday. No, absolutely not. Okay, perfect. absolutely not. And so this is so good. So I think again, um, as as Bible students, one of the things this is comes from N.T. Wright. We're historians. This is part of what we're doing. And so what happens is we have a tendency. I, Joel, I have a tendency of taking the fashionable nature of the cross and imposing it into my reading of the scriptures. First Corinthians mm -hmm. one eighteen, um, when uh, Peter and Paul. Uh, and Luke, the author of Acts, talk about in Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 10 and 13. Um, so, so I want to take a step away from the fashionable wearing a cross on our neck and, mm -hmm. and all of that cool stuff. And I want to root the story and the symbol and the language of the cross in its ancient Greco-Roman context. Um, and, and what this does for us is actually helps us to see that the cross was the ultimate sign of defeat. The cross was the ultimate sign of disaster. The, 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 the sign of the cross was a symbol that was carefully and technically curated by the Romans in order to instill fear into every nation that ever came across uh, across it. Uh, in fact, there, there are two really interesting stories. One is of, um, and this comes from Eusebius, who's a church historian. He tells a story about a, a general. Um, his name was Ambaris. And this general took about 2,000 Jewish rebels and crucified them. And, and I just want, I want us to think about that symbol for a people that are expecting freedom, they're expecting um, revolution, and all they get is their brothers, their husbands, their sons crucified on a cross, dying a, a death later on in the siege of Jerusalem. Um, there's another general, General Titus, and Josephus, a church historian, he says this, it's kind of insane. They don't even have the actual numbers of how many people Titus crucified, but what they said was that there was no more space in the city for the for the bodies to be to be lifted up simultaneously there wasn't enough wood in order to construct the crosses by which they were supposed to do it you know right now we're frustrated about gas prices we have enough gas we're frustrated about um you know like i i ordered something on wayfair like 7 months ago and i right. still haven't gotten it you know, but imagine not having any wood in your area because all of the wood had been um, just uh, snatched up in order to construct crosses mm -hmm. on which your people were to hang. Here's here's a last one. I know you're about to ask me a question, but um, Rome would never have 
crosses in its city vicinity, right? And so they would put it on the outside. But here's the problem. As all cities do, they grow. They expand. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you have to grow? Listen, they had to actually take, this is Tom Holland, a church historian. The, he says they actually had to take the most aromatic plants, the most beautifully smelling plants, and just saturate the soil and that area with this because the smell, the stench of death and the and the um, just leftover symbolism and reality of the cross was there so much. And it's something that we can't comprehend, smell, the smell Mm. of death. And that's how Rome had to deal with the cross. And so before we can get to what's good about the cross, I think we have to deal rightly and honestly with the horror and the tragedy and um, the defeat of what the cross Mm. would have meant for the people of Israel. You know, that's so good because so often we think, you know, we see the three crosses, you know, there's like three crosses, Jesus, and then then the two people that we know about from the Gospels that he hung in between. Uh, But what you're saying and what you're explaining to us is that this would this would have been common for people to see people being crucified all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, common, common. Like just another Friday. Common in the sense that I don't think it would have been every day, but if if a revolt took place and there were many revolts that took place, then yeah, yeah, it's the same like the Olympics, you know, the Olympics come around at a a special amount of time or it's like the or Super Bowl, like we know when Super Mm -hmm. Bowl comes around, people could feel they could Mm -hmm. feel the tension of when the crosses were about to be raised up because the cross was a symbol and a sign that Rome wanted to put in front of your face that whatever you thought the victory that you were going to get ain't happening, sis. Like mm, it's, it's just not happening. That's so good. Um, this is completely off topic and you guys are going to laugh at me. Isn't there a Spider-Man character named the, isn't Tom Holland an actor? Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. why, listen, yeah. whenever I listen to like, I've heard you've quoted him today. I was listening to a podcast yesterday where someone quoted him and they always say Tom Holland, the church historian. And I'm like, I wonder if that's a new thing because we now have Tom Holland as Superman no, or Spider-Man. I mean, I had finished this book, <laughs> Dominion. It's Tom Holland. I mean, it's a monster book. Right. And I'm I think sitting, someone told me about this. Yes. Uh-huh. I'm sitting at the I'm like on a flight. I was flying somewhere. I'm mm-hmm. sitting and I'm reading it. And the person next to me goes, the Spider-Man. <laughs> Spider-Man <laughs> wrote a book and I was like oh man how am I, no, I was like no nah. and then I had to like navigate into the whole thing but no it's the, history, home, yeah. the church historian not our friendly neighborhood spider um you know it's I, I love that history that you're bringing and so I want you to talk to about like what does it mean then when we take all of that knowledge and again we were, you're still going to tell us why this Friday is good but we take all of that knowledge and then we see that Jesus, like our savior was killed that same way. Like, what was it that, how does Jesus just literally turns all of that upside down? Because this was what, how they were killing criminals and then Jesus defeats it. So, so talk a little bit about how that cross, well, maybe even my bigger question for you is I want you to tell us why Good Friday is good. And then I also want to tell you like, when and why did the cross become a symbol of hope for us as believers? Because I can't imagine it felt hopeful for hundreds of years, even after Jesus was crucified. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I think so. One of the things is I think it's really, um, I think it's sobering to remember that throughout the gospel narratives, every time we read about the words of Jesus as he's enduring the cross, like I just think about myself and I'm probably not saying nice things. I'm probably not like being empathetic or kind towards the people that are actually murdering me you know and yet the 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 overwhelming refrain of Jesus that the gospel narratives communicate is 
um, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so, and so simultaneously, as Jesus is going to what he knows is going to be a death for a time, and I put an asterisk, you know, kind of next to that, simultaneously, there's a people that is watching that have expected the Messiah to be the one who's going to overcome Rome, to bring um, the temple back to its glory, um, to be a people that God had promised them all the way back in the Old Testament. And all of those hopes are shattering with every step that Jesus takes towards Golgotha. Like, mm. like that's where I think the history is really important for us, that we locate ourselves in the story, because literally for them, it's PTSD. They're going, yeah. yep. Varus did this to, to, to the Messiah. Yep. Titus did this to the Messiah. Yep. Like this is just another, the Maccabeans, that whole thing fell apart and they're going, Jesus is just another number in a long number of failed messiahs, failed promises. Um, and that's the situation that they're in. And yet, Joel, I want to stop you for a second. Are you saying that there would have been, and I think this is true of my question, that there would have been other people who have come along before Jesus saying, hey, I'm who you've been waiting for. Yes, absolutely. Okay, and so then they had said, follow them, and they're listening to them, and all of a sudden they're dead and dead in the ground. Yes. And so that's why they're looking at Jesus going, wait, we've heard this before. Yes, absolutely. In I fa- think we forget that is what I'm saying. Is <laughs> yes. like We think that Jesus just showed up and everyone's like, oh, here he is. But yet they had been saying that before. Yep. And again, locate this with Pontius Pilate and and, uh, Barabbas, right? How in the world does the crowd ask for Barabbas versus Jesus? In fact, I actually think Pontius Pilate in that whole narrative that's taking place there, I think Pontius Pilate thinks, Asia, I gotcha. There ain't no mm-hmm. way on God's green earth that y'all are going to pick a known, verified murderer, rebel, horrific person named Barabbas and pick him over Jesus, this innocent man, right? Who has literally healed people. But here's the thing, the people actually, and this is what, what I think is happening, um, and there's some scholarship behind it. Um, Barabbas was a brigand. He was a rebel, and it was kind of like the Robin Hood scenario. He had uh-huh. stolen from Rome, given back, you know, that type of deal. And so even though his revolt failed, I think the people look at Barabbas and say, well, at least he lived up. At least he lived up to what he said he was going to do. And so I'd rather have him free than a person who promises the world but gave us nothing. What peace? We're supposed to love our neighbors, right? We're supposed to love our enemies. Like it, it makes no sense. And like he's not solving their problem that they feel they have. Right. Because Jesus is, always, mind. Jesus is always after root cause issues. You know, what good is it to solve the Roman problem is this is the narrative of scripture. What good is it to deal with Egypt? Because when Egypt is done, Babylon comes in. What good is it to deal with Babylon? Because Persia comes in. What good is it to deal with Persia? Because then the Syrians are. What good is it for Assyria? Because then Rome is there. And so actually the people of God, if we have a little bit of like recollection and we look at history, we should be like, hey, there seem to be dark powers behind these enemies, behind these rulers, behind these evil systems and structures. And so we need to get to root cause issues. And that's exactly what Jesus gets to. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. Um, and, and he is reflecting on Jesus. He says, for I passed on to you as, listen to this, most important, what I also received. And what is the thing that's most important? 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the 12. And then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. I think that's so interesting how Paul describes death there as falling mm-hmm. asleep. And so, um, and so we have Jesus as he goes to the cross, he knows that he needs to do something that is actually a fulfillment of all of the scriptures. And the people of Israel should have known what the scriptures pointed to. I mean, this is um, all, I mean, Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows, and he's going to um, be pierced for our transgressions. And yet they're so captivated by what is the immediate need that they have that they miss the divine purpose of Jesus. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a -a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. 
Okay, so we talk about um, the cross, and I hearing you talk about that is such a reminder that the cross that we wear on our necks, that we get tattooed on our arms, that we have on stationery and on pillows cross-stitched in our house, that it hasn't always been a symbol of hope and something that we look to as like, this is a foundation of our faith. Can you tell us a little bit of history behind that, of why it would have taken, I mean, I can... I could take an educated guess of why it would take so long because that's how people were crucified and murdered. Obviously doesn't feel very hopeful to me unless it's Jesus, but there were, you know, hundreds and thousands of other people who were killed that way and they didn't rise from the grave. So how did we take on this cross as a thing of hope? Yeah. Well, let me first state very clearly. Why is good Friday? Good. Why is the cross good? Because it's on the cross that Jesus defeats death through death itself. There's a greater enemy than Pharaoh. There's a greater enemy than Egypt. There's a, there's a greater enemy than Rome. And in fact, when you look at um, uh, the way that Luke describes it in Luke 23, 34, or the way that Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, that these powers and principalities, these evil cosmic forces were at play behind the scenes. And this is the irony of the entire thing, that they're working through the Pharisees, through the Sadducees, through Pontius, through Rome, through Caesar, and the evil powers think that they have actually um, uh, like ace, that they've got a checkmate on Jesus. They, as they send Jesus to death on the cross, that they're mm-hmm. going to win this epic um, battle, cosmic battle. And yet it's on the cross that Jesus actually signs their death warrant. If the evil powers could have even known what was going to happen on the cross, they would have never in their wildest dreams ever uh, intentionally sent him to the cross. And yet it's on the cross that Jesus, uh, and I think this is so important for us, that the sign of death in the known world at the time, it's only because of what Jesus does after three days that that symbol could have even been uh, flipped. Like from a logical standpoint, it makes absolutely no sense at all for this symbol to ever be a good symbol. If all you had to do was provide the body of Jesus, all you had to do, like, like in, and Rome would have put their very best effort uh, of doing that. And then a side note on this is why the three days, I think it's very important, very practically that um, the people mourn, I think they have to feel the full impact of death. I think from between Good Friday, when we leave, the, if you do a Good Friday service, to when you go to your Easter service, um, our church a couple of years ago, we all left in silence, you know? Mm-hmm. And that silence is a reminder um, that, that there was a grave consequence to humanity's sin. There was a grave consequence um, to our disobedience. And Jesus took that consequence upon himself. This is uh, the atonement. You know, uh, there was uh, one scholar who, who said it like this. I think it's really interesting that the day that Jesus is born, it's um, the middle of the night and the night is lit up bright. Mm-hmm. And the day that Jesus dies, it's the middle of the day and everything goes to darkness. And so what we find on the cross is an epic reversal from death to actually the possibility for humanity to actually regain life through Jesus, the Messiah. And so you have this that takes place. And here's the now we get to like, okay, how in the world do we now have jewelry and crosses? And now we're celebrating the cross. And we got a big old picture of the cross up on a stage at a church. And we're doing all kinds of theatrics around it. Well, I think it's really important for us. And again, I think it's human tendency for us to think that the day Jesus dies, it's three days later, he comes up. And now everybody is throwing out the symbol of the cross all over the place. But that's actually now what took place. In fact, um, we don't get to any type of really recollection of the symbol of the cross being used until around 200 AD. I 
think, if my memory serves me correctly, it's Tertullian, who um, is a North African uh, bishop. He, he actually talks about how during baptism, they put the sign of the cross on the person that's being baptized. We're talking now like 200 years later, right? right. In fact, the very first um, Jesus followers were not known as the cross. They were known as the way. Uh, they didn't have the symbol of the cross. The, the the imagery was like the dove or the palm branches. And in fact, it's not until 400 years later with Constantine that the symbol actually becomes almost not commercialized, but popularized um, as it becomes the sign and symbol um, of the empire because of this insane vision that Constantine has um, as he's getting into go to this battle in like 8300, 8312. And so I just, just taking a step back from all of this, mm-hmm. 400 years, it, it takes 400 years for a symbol of total disaster, defeat, and death to now become what we know of it as. And I think this really messes with me, particularly, Jamie, because I'm a person who wants what I want when I want it. Mm -hmm. I want immediate gratification. I want immediate satisfaction. And I have a strong suspicion that there might be a lot of people that are dealing with symbols of defeat, symbols of death, reality of those types of hardships and doubt and anxiety. And typically what we want is for God to intervene in that moment and to take it Mm -hmm. and snatch it right away. And yet the constant um, preposition throughout the entire Bible is the preposition through. The the through preposition has a purpose. Jesus has to go through Samaria. Jesus has to go through the wilderness. Jesus has to go to and through the cross to get to the other side of the tomb. The people of Israel have to go through the wilderness. They've got to go through the Red Sea. They've got to go through. And, And so it's not around or under or over. It's actually through. And so I think what's actually happening is it's in that tension of going through and dealing with the horror, dealing with the tension of hope, dealing with the reality that God can change and shift things in our life, that over time, God works in this incredible way where we can now look at a symbol. And the only rational explanation for why this is possible is because of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. Mm. It's how we can have hope in the midst of suffering. Like mm-hmm. that's the way we can have is walking through that to get to the other side. You know, you mentioned three days here. And one of the questions that someone sent in to me when I told them I was going to be talking to someone about Good Friday is they couldn't get the math for the three days. So I think that came through a lot of times on questions. What is the math for the three days? Friday, Saturday, Sunday, like Friday night, Sunday morning. How do we get our three days here? Yeah, so that's a really, really good question. And if you go into commentaries and you look at scholars, there's all kinds of reasons for it. I'm going to give you two. uh, I'll give you two. And then one that I think is more plausible or that I I believe in. One is the thought, and this is also true of like the Passover supper. Um, Does Jesus actually take the Passover meal or does he take a type of Passover meal? Because there seems to be kind of contradicting perspectives. And here's what's happening around the time that Jesus is there. Um, There are two religious political parties at play. You've got the Pharisees and you've got the Sadducees. They both have different calendars. So it's very possible that um, there are different meals that are taking place at different times that gives you this 24-hour kind of differential, you know, on both sides. That's a possibility. There's just not enough like information on that. I tend to try to go with what I think is uh, present throughout the entirety of scripture. So Esther, I think it's Esther four and Esther five. You've got Esther um, in the story saying like, Hey, 
everybody who's a geolook, I need you all to fast and pray for the next three days, you know, because I'm going to go uh, in front of the king. Um, Jonah is in the belly of a whale. Through, and these are all seems to be shadows of what's going to happen mm-hmm. with Jesus. And yet the math is the same thing. It doesn't seem to quite add up. Here's what I think is actually happening is that the Jewish calendar, the Jewish way of understanding how a day works is different from the way that we understand it. So on Friday, when Jesus um, is raised up on the cross, that actual day started at sunset Thursday night. And so that first day was actually Friday, but the way that the Jewish understanding could have understood it was, well, you kind of assume the night of Thursday already included in the day of Friday. So then you've got basically three nights and three days when you do the math that way, because the day would have ended around noon or, you know, sunset of that day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that helps a lot because that was a common question that kept coming in for us as well. You know, there's this um, theological concept of cruciformity yeah. that um, I've heard you talk about. And um, my friend Ann Voskamp talks about this all the time of living a life um, this way. And so can you talk to us about what that means for us as followers of Jesus? Yeah. So I think that as a people of God, we're being shaped. And I think there's a really big question that we have to ask, um, who's shaping us and what are we, sh- we being shaped towards? Um, and actually it's kind of a sobering reality because we have competing things all around us that are, um, attempting to gain our affection and our attention. They are attempting to gain our allegiance. Uh, in the new Testament, Paul talks about pistis often pistis is the Greek word for faith. And a lot of times uh, we reserve it for this mental, like, I believe, you know, like I believe, but the way that Paul uses this language is about both, both mental belief and also an allegiance that the works and what I do matches with what I say I actually mm-hmm. believe. And so then the question goes, we look at all the things that we just um, discussed about the cross. Uh, we know that the cross becomes a symbol by which Jesus himself, um, I mean, in the last supper, right? Like when he, when he gives us like, Jesus, do this in remembrance of me. Every one of those actions points us to the symbol of the cross. It's not an alive body that he tells us. Mm-hmm. He's alluding to a, to the dead body. It's not living blood that he's he's alluding to. It's the mm-hmm. shedding of blood. You know, all this stuff takes place on the cross. Um, yeah. The baptism imagery it only makes sense in light of the cross. And so the question is: um, Are we a people who allow the cross to form our hearts to? Um, to direct our thoughts and to guide our steps. There's like the whole being of who a, hu- of who a human is. Mm. Uh, and, and, and sometimes I think people might hear this and go, well, Joel, that's very simple, of course. And I would say, yeah, it's simple, but don't be, um, how do I say this without it being a little rough? Like, like don't be conned into thinking that simple is also simplistic. It is simple, but it is not simplistic. And so um, what I believe Jesus wants of us and what I think that the first century showed, how do you make sense of the rapid growth of Christianity in the midst of um, a Messiah who they're saying died? Mm-hmm. Like to the point where you look at, and you can read um, Fox's book of martyrs, like the amount of death and, and martyrdom, martyrdom that took place. It's because each of these individuals that were martyred for their faith, that, that willingly gave up their lives, did so because they believed that the cross 
was the place that Jesus's victory over the evil powers took place, that the cross was the bridge that is the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven that is to come, but is actually present now. The cross makes it possible for the church to be a missional outpost that is declaring to a broken and dark world, hey, come be a part of our family. Our God is the real God. He is the true king. And being a, a outpost is a dangerous place to be because when the enemy attacks, they attack the outpost first. And so it's in doing all these things that we actually reflect the cross. It is a cruciform type of living. It is a um, cross type of thinking and cross type of doing and, and cross type of living. And so um, easier said, I know, than done. It can sound simple, but it's not simplistic. And I think that um, this is one of those things as we leave, you know, as we go into Good Friday and then we go into Easter. I think this is one of those things that cannot be left behind after we leave Easter. This is the thing that we have to hold on to and continually think and put into our minds and just ponder on and meditate on. How can we be a people who truly reflect the image of God? Um, and that is when we form our lives around the cross. So a lot of people who are listening to us right now, Joel, have small kids. And I know you have younger kids. Yeah. And also, if you follow uh, Joel's wife, you also get to see y'all's cutie pie kids <laughs> all the time. Um, but I think a lot of people sometimes kind of wrestle with how do I talk about what happened on Friday when Jesus was crucified with my kids? It feels difficult. It feels hard to talk about murder and death and a gruesome death at that. And so how do you talk to your kids and how do you just encourage people listening to talk to young kids about um, Jesus's crucifixion? Such a good question. I think first is um, I want to encourage y'all that God gave you your kids to you. And so, you know, the heart of your child, you know, the um, maturity, you know, the sensitivity of your, of your children. Um, and so I think it's really important that we use wisdom in this conversation, and I just want to equip you and encourage you that, that God gave you these children to shepherd, shepherd their hearts and to love, love on them well. And then I'll give you a little bit of encouragement and maybe a little bit of a, of a push here as well. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have that I've had with my kids is trying to, in a sense, protect them from hard things. And y'all, the world is hard. <laughs> like they deal with hard things every, every day. And so I think there is a tension here to manage of being able to put on display the, um, the hardship of the cross, but also never disconnect what is hard with what is hopeful. So, so in this way, like um, I, would, I would say, and I'm just going to think about how I talk about the cross and Jesus to my youngest son, Lucas, who's seven years old. Um, I would say to him, you know, um, Luke, parents love their kids like really love their kids and daddy loves you. And I would literally son, like, I would do anything for you. Like I, I would go above and beyond for you because that's how ferociously I love you. And son, dad um, loves you, but the way that God loves you is more immense than I could even love you. And in fact, um, the way that God showed us how incredibly massive he loved us is by making sure that you and him could never be separated. Mm. 
and the way. And so here's what separates us, sin. Sin separates us and it makes it so that we can't be in relationship together. And yet Jesus, when he goes on the cross and when he dies, he actually bridges that gap. He actually conquers sin so that you and I could be in a relationship with God and the family could come back together. And so that's just like a really quick summarization that puts an emphasis on love and family and God's heart for a united family and still talks about, about death. And as kids get older, I think you can talk about the cross and I think you can talk about how challenging it is. Um, and the other thing too, is I've got a young daughter, her name's Amelia, Amelia Jane, we call her MJ. She's two years old. Um, and I don't know, this might get edited out, Jamie, you might not like what I say here, but I'll just be honest. I wouldn't, sh- I wouldn't shield Emmy from this conversation with her brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's something that's happening when I am talking to my kids at their levels that even for little, little children that they're like, like I watch Emmy watch frozen and the way that she like reacts to when Anna gets hit by the ice blast is just unbelievable. Right. She goes, Ooh, ah, and she, and she reacts that she can, she can grasp it. And I actually think that, that in those conversations, um, when our younger children are around that it's starting to actually form them and help them wrap their mind around what's taking place so that you can develop and um, increase that conversation over time. Don't worry, Dr. Matamali, I'm not taking that part out. <laughs> was, I, I, I'm with you on that. You know, you kind of like the, the question I wanted to end with here is I think it's really important to even talk about why Jesus had to go to the cross. And we've alluded to it a lot in this conversation. You alluded to it a lot just now in just presenting the gospel to your kids. I mean, if you're wondering, guys, that's what Joel just did is he just presented the gospel to his kids. And when we do that over and over and over again, that's how we, you know, like the old times it says to talk about his word all the time and to write on doorposts. You just did that when you talk to your kids. So there's that encouragement to you guys that are listening. But I think if anyone else is listening and they're like, I don't know about Christianity and it feels real weird that you guys are celebrating the death of someone on a cross. And like, so without this being a whole nother podcast that we could also do, Joel, about this one question, why is it that Jesus had to go to the cross? I mean, this is, like you said, the foundation of our faith. Why, why did it have to be this way? Yeah. In, in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, um, and I always point out that they do it together. Adam and Eve take part of the fruit they're not supposed to take, and they go into full-on rebellion. And that rebellion has stayed with humanity ever since. And, and every one of us that's like, ah, Adam and Eve, how could they do it? I would have never done it. I'm just going to be like, nah, you would do it. You would take the, you would take the apple. Like you, you we would, all we would. would all do it. Like, come on now. Right. Like, like, come on. Um, and God is, <laughs> he is bent on having his family together. Um, and so in the first, in the first garden, there's a, there's these two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there's also this tree of life. And when God sends Adam and Eve out of Eden, he doesn't do it purely punitively. Is there a consequence? Yes. But the consequence is wrapped up in compassion. And the compassion is if they ate of that fruit of the tree, they would live in eternal separation from God. And God could not have that. He needed to have a way for humanity to be reconciled back to himself. And the story of scripture from Genesis all the way through to the cross and the gospels is this one continuous story of God working 
through his people in order to set right all that was wrong. And what is sin? Sin is simply missing the mark. Sin is simply saying like, hey, here's what God intends for us. And, and, and sin is like not being able to live up to that, not being able to do that. And so what Jesus does on the cross, a lot of different words that are used for it, um, but he is our representation. He represents humanity on the cross. He is um, our substitution. He takes what we deserved. Uh, it's called, C.S. Lewis called it the great exchange. Um, and he's also the victor. Because on the cross, he's victorious over sin and death. And all three of those things, I think, come together so that the gospel, which simply means the good news, could be proclaimed. And what is the good news? The good news is that Jesus didn't stay on that cross. The good news is that Jesus wasn't um, one in a long line of rebels, leaders that stayed in a grave and their name was etched in a couple you know, years. No, Jesus rose from the grave. And so because of Jesus's victory over sin and death, the gospel, the proclamation of the good news um, of who Jesus is, uh, is something that we can take hold of, that we can grasp, that we can submit ourselves to. And in doing so, we are reunited with God, who is our good father. And um, here's the other thing, and this is just a small note. That word gospel, Jamie, in the Greco-Roman world was understood in a military context. And so the victory of Jesus on the cross was the moment where the gospel could truly be proclaimed in fullness. But um, back then, you know, if a war was won, there would be many other skirmishes that were taking place. And a, a person would get on their horse and go as fast as they could in order to let everybody else know that are still fighting. That the right. battle, like, hey, the war is over. You don't need to fight anymore, right? And mm-hmm. on the cross, that was where that decisive victory took place. And yet um, there are still skirmishes that are taking place all over the place. And God has so graciously given us, you and I, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the ministry of reconciliation, that we can proclaim the good news of the gospel where the presence of all these other skirmishes are taking place and say, listen, you can stop fighting. There's no more need for that because Jesus is king and he is victorious. That is such good news. And it is the good news that we're celebrating this weekend of Easter. And Joel, I am so grateful uh, for your time with us today. I know that this is going to be so um, interesting and informative and exciting as people listen to it. I would love to know, uh, I know you're a reader and I I love when you share books with us. What are you reading these days? Oh gosh. Um, Let me see. I have it on on my desk. So I'll give you, um, I'll give you one very academic one. Uh, And so this is called uh, from N.T. Wright, Jesus and the Victory of God, you know, so this is kind Mm -hmm. of, kind of thick or whatever. Um, The other one is actually right here and it's a series of short essays. This is my devotional reading and it's called Pointing to the Pasture Lands, and it's a collected uh, essays of Dr. J.I. Packer, who I think is one of the greatest, uh, he and John Stott are some like just greatest theologians. They're theologian goals. And so those are the two kind of books. I'm, and then I've got a whole bunch of other stuff for projects that I'm, I'm reading. Joel, I know one of the things that you um, do that is so great and so excited is you do classes with Lisa Turkers, who's a friend of the Happy Hour. Uh, you guys are in the middle of about to do one right now. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, we're really excited about this one. It's called Healing While You're Still Hurting. Um, and it's actually kind of a spinoff of the Therapy and Theology series that Lisa and I uh-huh. get to do with uh, Jim Kress, who's a dear friend. And so it's a, um, yeah, it's a it's an online course that you can jump into and we'll do it live. But then there's also 
replay available as well for you. And it's like four or five um, sessions that we'll do. Uh, and we're really excited about it, but we'll talk about boundaries. We'll talk about forgiveness. Um, we'll talk about just processing the reality of life and pain and hurt um, with the promise of what scripture teaches us to do or not to do in the midst of all of that. So if you've got kind of dysfunctional relationships, which I do for sure, everybody, uh, everybody, does, everybody, everybody so, does. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those things that um, is super helpful. And it's also really important. I think that if we can get on the front end of this before they become so overwhelming, that there are some real Really, like I love what Jim does is just practical things that we can do in our relationships to safeguard them, to make sure that we cultivate healthy relationships with the people that we love. I love that so much. And I know that you get to work with Lisa closely. I am almost done with her book that comes out, her next one. And yeah. I, am, I know, I know it's really, really, really good. good. So a little plug for our friend. Uh, Joel, thank you so much. Um, it's always a joy to have you. Um, in my life. And most of the time that's through Instagram and following you and learning from you. And so it's a joy to have you over on the happy hour. Uh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Jamie. Okay. You guys love hearing from Joel. I promised you a song. Here is a song entitled Oh setting sun from Austin stone worship. And you can download it wherever you listen to music. Enjoy the song. This man of gentleness Rejected by the ones he loved Why would the fount of righteousness Let mercy flow as crimson blood Oh, death, here is your sting 
Thank you so much for listening to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to give you, and every opportunity we get to point all of us to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is the number one way that people find out about our show. It's because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that will make us think, they'll make us laugh, and they'll always point us back to Jesus. And come find me other places on the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm over there at Jamie Ivy. And if you've never visited my YouTube page, you're going to want to go there. Have you ever listened to a show and wondered, I wonder what they look like? Well, go find us over there. It's jamieivy.com slash YouTube. The Happy Hour is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. Graphics are by Amaya Savoy Easton. The show is edited by Angie Elkins. And I'm your host every week, Jamie Ivey. And goodness gracious, I love being here with you guys. Until next time, have a happy hour with a friend.